How do we grow? What takes us from simply reading and listening to moving and doing? Into a roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty kind of walk, driven by a desire to grow in grace and humility, digging in faith and on good soil, implanting his word in our hearts, waking up to life on the other side, where peace-loving wisdom resides, persevering through trials and temptation, through death and destruction, giving life-breathing water through action and deed, letting it soak in and take deep root in every aspect. That kind of doing changes us. It leads us into true faith, true faith that produces good fruit and changes who we are in Christ, driving us to sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness, to lead with love and give to others generously with mercy, causing us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers. Well, I'd love to welcome you here, and uh, for those of you here in Bellingham, not those of you online or Skagit or Boca, for those of you here in Bellingham, that's why Ron doesn't often get to stand up here and speak, okay? <laughs> that's why we like a guitar in his hand and just some songs that are already been written and, and prescribed. Hey, it is good to have you here. Good to have you here. Uh, those of you in Skagit, so glad that you're with us, and Pastor Scott with you. We prayed for your kids this morning as they're on their retreat and just praying that God does some incredible things. Boca Raton, the church there, Trinity Church of God, thanks for being here. And those of you who are watching uh, the live stream, it's good to have you with us as well on an incredibly beautiful October morning. It is unbelievable. What a day. If you're visiting from California, it's never like this. Just go ahead and stay where you live. This is, wow. It's amazing. Hey, uh, I, before I get into this, I want to say thank you to Pastor Kip here in Bellingham and Pastor Brian in Skagit because last week they kicked off our new series called Doers as we're looking into the book of James over the course of eight weeks. And I wanna say this, that our weekend service called Doers as we're studying the book of James is not an exhaustive study of the book of James. The book of James is relatively short, five chapters, 108 verses. But this is not an exhaustive study of the book of James. It's not even an extensive study of the book of James. It's not even a thorough study of the book of James. What this series is, is like a small, uh, smooth stone that has been skipped across a pond and will touch down eight times on this beautiful, deep, crystal clear pond, and it'll just barely skip across the surface. That's why I want to encourage you on your own to be reading through the book of James over these next couple of months. As I said, it's very short, 108 verses. If you read on an average two verses a day, you can make it all the way through this book in this series. I think you can all do two verses a day. I would encourage you to do more so you kind of get it in the context instead of these little bite-sized pieces. But even if it was just two verses a day, be reading this book, be discussing it, writing down questions, insights, things that impact your life, and it's amazing. Another little resource I want to point you to is that the people at the Bible Project, these guys are amazing, have done an eight-minute overview of the book of James. I put the website, the address there in uh, either in your link. It's also on the mobile app, on the sermon notes as you're watching online, the sermon notes. It's there as well, the Bible Project, looking at the, the book of James. It's well worth the eight minutes to watch this, to get kind of the 30,000-foot view of what is this book about, who's it to, who's it from, those kind of things and overall themes. Fantastic. Take eight minutes this week sometime. 
and watch that. Uh, today, as we continue on in this series, uh, while uh, Pastor Kip and Pastor Brian kicked us off last week, I want to back up a little bit and give you a little bit more background to this book. So hang with me on the front end of, of our time together today as we talk about the book of James. The, the name James is the Greek name for the Hebrew name Jacob. It's the same name. It's like Bob and Robert or Robert and Roberto. It's the same name, just different languages. But there can be some confusion about who is this James slash Jacob guy who wrote this book. And some of you say, well, that's obvious. He wrote the whole Bible, right? The King James Version. No, <laughs> that's not the same James. That James was not from the New Testament. He was from the UK, and that version came out in 1611, long before this book was written. Here's part of the confusion is that in the New Testament, there are four different guys that have the name James, which isn't uncommon. We have four guys with the name Mike in our church. I mean, it's not uncommon. So there's four guys, but it can be confusing. Which ones is it? So there's a guy named James who's the father of one of the disciples, uh, Thaddeus, or also known as, as Judas, not Judas Iscariot. His dad's name is James. That's not who wrote the book. He's just got, got this little, one little shout out in the Bible, and that's it. There's also Santiago. We just talked about Camino de Santiago. Saint James, the brother of John, James and John, the sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee, part of the inner circle of Jesus, you know, the Peter, James, and John, this, this inner circle that Jesus had. That James did not write this book either. As we talked about in last month's uh, series, that James was martyred probably before this book was written, so he would not have been the author. There's another disciple uh, named uh, James, and he's often referred to as James the Younger, or James the Less, or James the Minor, James the son of Alphaeus. And he probably did not hold a prominent enough place in the early church to write this book. The fourth is James, the brother of Jesus. And it is generally agreed upon among scholars that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this book. Uh, the half-brother in that Mary uh, was Jesus' mother but conceived of the Holy Spirit. And some of you may have said, I never knew Jesus had a brother or, or, or anything of that nature. And let me just take a minute. I don't want to get too far down on a, on a little rabbit trail, and I don't want this to, to upset you or to, to get you high-centered because this is not the point of our, of our talk, but it helps with the understanding about this uh, with James, the brother of Jesus. When Jesus started his earthly ministry, as an adult, he came back to Nazareth, and the people that he had grown up with, the people that had known him from his childhood, the people that knew him all his life, were amazed by two things. The amount of wisdom that he had, and the miraculous power that he had to do some things that were like unexplainable. And so we read these words in scripture, it says, they came back to Nazareth, and they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? That's Joseph, the carpenter. Isn't his mother's name Mary? That's Mary. And aren't his, and here we go, aren't his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Now, here's a couple of, of, of things on this. And let me just say, and again, don't, let's not get high-centered on this. There has been discussions and disagreements about this for hundreds and hundreds of years, and godly men and women, scholarly godly men and women have disagreed on this. But it lists these brothers, and the list would most likely be in chronological order. So James, whom we're talking about, James is the oldest of the younger siblings. Here's the other little side thing. You never really think about Jesus having sisters. And it wasn't just one, because it's plural, and it's probably not just two, because it says all. 
So Jesus probably had three or more sisters. Here's where the controversy or disagreement comes. It's that some people in the Catholic Church and even some of the early church uh, Protestant fathers believed in the perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary. And if that were the case, then what do you do with a verse like this? Let me give you the other perspective that, that for hundreds of years the Protestant church has held to, is that Joseph and Mary were married. Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, but in the, the covenant and the confines of a marriage with a man and a woman, it's a holy gift from God. And in that kind of a co uh, covenant, in that kind of a commitment, in that kind of a relationship of marriage of, of a man and woman, God has given a holy and beautiful gift. And that gift is sex. And that can produce children. It can express love and intimacy. And it can be a place where you experience pleasure. And it is a holy and beautiful thing when done in the parameters that God designed it. So for many, they would say, well, yes, of course Joseph and Mary had children. And that doesn't diminish her holiness or her purity at all. Others would say, well, no, 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 that's not it. She has always been the Virgin Mary, will always be the Virgin Mary. And it's not just the Catholics who have thought this. Some of the early Protestant fathers, Luther, Zwingli, even Wesley, held to this. So then you say, well, what do you do with a verse like this? And so there's a couple of theories. One of the theories is that, if this were the case, that these children were actually Joseph's children from an earlier marriage, that Joseph was a widower, a widower, a righteous man with children, and God chose him to be the stepfather of Jesus. If that's the case, what's interesting is all of the brothers and sisters would have been older than Jesus. If Mary had these kids, they would all be younger than Jesus. Little side note, doesn't have a lot of bearing, but it's something to think about. Another way to interpret this, and some people have held to this, is that the word brothers and sisters are loose translations and that these may have been family relatives, but not from the nuclear family. They may have been cousins. They have been nephews and nieces of Joseph and Mary. Now, please, please, please do not get high-centered on that. We can talk about that and have fun with that. People have for hundreds of years. That's not the point of the sermon. Last night, someone came up to me, and that was all they could talk about. I was like, whoa, 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 you missed everything else. I'm just kind of giving you some backdrop on this. What we do know is whether these are Jesus's, you know, physical half-brothers and sisters, whether they are step-brothers and sisters, or whether they are cousins, this we do know. One, they grew up with Jesus. They were very familiar with him and his life. Two, they're very familiar with him as an adult. They would have heard his teachings, teachings they would have experienced or heard about or seen his miracles. And the third thing we know is they're not buying the whole Messiah thing. They're saying, wow, this, this, uh, this guy, Jesus, our brother, our cousin, whatever, yeah, he teaches like no one's business. I mean, it's amazing. And he does some things we can't explain. But the whole Messiah thing, I don't know. Understandably, I have a brother. <laughs> Today's his birthday. I love my brother. Texting him this morning. My brother is amazing. My brother eclipses me on an intellectual level, on an academic level. He has such an incredible brain. He's a strategic thinker. He's a critical thinker. He, his insights, his memory, he eclipses me intellectually. My brother eclipses me in creativity, the way he does things. He, he eclipses me musically. The only thing I've got going over my brother is I'm taller than him and I can outrun him. Other than that, he just exceeds me. So, he's amazing. But if he said, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'm not buying it. 
So you kind of understand why maybe Jesus' brothers were saying, yeah, not so sure about this. And we see this play out in John chapter 7. And John chapter 7 says, um, after this, now after what? After John chapter 6. <laughs> what happened in John chapter 6 is that Jesus preached a sermon, and it was really, really hard teaching. In fact, people were saying, like, we can't handle this. This is where he said, I am the bread of life. He talks about this bread that came down from heaven, the manna. I am the bread of life. And then he would say lines like this, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people are going, whoa, 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 okay, wait a second. That's just weird. You know, this cannibalism stuff, we're out. And many people left. And it caused a lot of controversy. So it was after this teaching that he has in John chapter 6, after this, Jesus went around and Pay special attention here because there's going to be a quiz here and elsewhere. Jesus went around in Galilee purposefully, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews were waiting to take his life. Quiz. Where was Jesus in John chapter 7, where was he purposely staying away from? Judea. Judea. It's right here. <laughs> and why was he staying away from Judea? Exactly. Okay, so you got that really clear. Jesus is saying, I am not going to Judea. They're waiting to kill me in Judea. Good enough. We understand that. Look at this. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, which is Sukkot, just happened in September, was near, Jesus' brother said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea. <laughs> now, there have been times in my life that I wished my brother was dead. <laughs> But come on, he's like, whoa, bro, hold on a second. You know, you're telling him to go where they're trying to kill him. Why would you do that? And, and you just see this thing of these brothers, there's this sibling rivalry, and then they start just needling him. They're a little sarcastic. They're kind of jabbing at him. Why don't you go to Judea? And it goes on to say, so that your disciples, not us, your disciples may see the miracles you do. They had obviously seen them as well. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Come on, Jesus, you think you're the Messiah? Don't be a closet Messiah. You want to be a public figure? Go do these miraculous things in Judea. And then it says in verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him, James being one of them. They had heard him teach. There was nothing Jesus ever said that convinced them that he was the Messiah. They, as you will we'll talk about, James was very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. He may have been there. He may have heard it. He knew about it. But the Sermon on the Mount did not convince him that Jesus was the Messiah. He had maybe seen, experienced, or heard about the feeding of the 5,000, how the lame could walk and the blind could see and the deaf could hear. None of that convinced his brothers that he was the Messiah. Even raising Lazarus from the dead did not convince them that he was the Messiah. There was only one thing, and that was the resurrection. After their brother had been killed, had been crucified, had been laid in the tomb, Jesus came back from the dead, and that changed everything, even for his brothers and even for James. Because when he came back from the dead, he shows himself to the disciples. He appears to 500 who were at the time of the writing still alive. Most of them are still alive. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, and then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And this did it for James. It did it for James. He was convinced. It did it for the other brothers as well. 
And from the time he was raised from the dead, the resurrection to the ascension back to the Father, there was 40 days. And during those 40 days, he met with the the disciples on several different occasions. And after he went back in the ascension, all the disciples were gathered together in Jerusalem. And this is what it says in Acts. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now they're convinced Jesus, our brother, is the Messiah. He was crucified, he was laid in the grave, he came back to life, we saw him, he is resurrected, and he is alive, and he is the Messiah. And James is so convinced, and the brothers are so convinced, they're there praying. James becomes one of the leaders in the early church. He's the first bishop in the church of Jerusalem. And as we will maybe look at in the next couple weeks, he spoke with incredible authority that he had this this prominent role of leadership in the early church as the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. And the church, after the day of Pentecost, just exploded. Thousands of people becoming believers and followers of Jesus. And one of the people that became a follower and believer of Jesus is a man named Stephen. And the Bible says about Stephen that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with grace. He was filled with faith. And he was filled with power. And God used him to do some incredible things. And there was a a disagreement amongst Stephen and Jewish leaders. And Stephen just preached a sermon to them basically walking all the way through the Old Testament and getting to the point where it talks about how their forefathers had these hardened hearts. And then he says, and you're just like our forefathers with these hardened hearts, with these uncircumcised ears and uncircumcised hearts, and you have murdered the Messiah. It didn't go over well. They killed him. They stoned him. They threw rocks at him until he was dead. Little side note, don't get hung up on this, but a little quiz. While he's being killed, there's a man over there holding on to everyone's coat and cheering them on. What's his name? Saul. Saul of Tarsus is watching this, giving full agreement with it and support to it, and would later meet Jesus and become Paul, the Apostle Paul. So after Stephen has been stoned, after he dies, something traumatic happens to the church. Acts chapter 8 says this. On that day, the day when Stephen was stoned, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. On that day, it was not good news to be a Christian in Jerusalem. There would be persecution, and they began to leave. They would leave their homes, they would leave their occupations, they would leave their families, maybe leave their possessions, all they could put on a donkey, and they would go and scatter throughout, and some of them would never, ever return to Jerusalem. And there was physical harm that they would have to face, and possible death, and this persecution, and poverty, and all of this, and they're spread throughout. And this goes on. the, The stoning of Stephen probably took place between the year 34 and 36 A.D., And now these followers of Jesus are spread throughout the area. And for years, they're experiencing poverty and hardship and persecution and, and difficulty. And James, who is the bishop of Jerusalem, decides to write them a letter. And again, James is most likely the first book in the New Testament that was written. Probably again, eight or nine years later, roughly around 45, 46 AD. He writes a letter to all these people. And we looked at this last week, James chapter one, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just my brother, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. He says to all of you who, who, who left, who were scattered, who were dispersed, who were, who were persecuted. 
Here's one of the things that is unique to James from some of Paul's writings. Paul would often write a letter to a specific church. The letter of Ephesians was to the church in Ephesus. The letter of Philippians was to the church in Philippi. You know, Romans to the church in Rome. But with James, he's writing this to people. There may have been multiple copies of this. This may have been passed around. It wasn't to a specific church. It was to people, these little gatherings, these little communities that had been persecuted but were still following Jesus. He had written it to them that they would scatter. And as he's writing this letter, the letter is not an evangelistic letter. He's not trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. He's not trying to convert them to this new way of following after Christ and, and Christianity. That is not his purpose. The goal of the letter is spiritual maturity. Because they've been persecuted now for eight or nine years and there may be no end in sight, he doesn't want them to grow weary in their life that they're living. He doesn't want them to grow cynical in all the pain and all the hardships and the persecution they're going through. He doesn't want them to just grow old in the Lord. He wants them to grow up in the Lord. He wants them to grow solid and deeper in the Lord. He wants them to have a foundation. And so he writes this letter, probably, as I said, the first book in the entire New Testament. And what you see as you will read this is that over and over again in this letter, he uses verbs, these actions, verbs in the imperative form. Which means, these aren't suggestions, these aren't ideas, these aren't some thoughts to be considered, these are imperative actions. He says, this is what we do, this is what you are to do. And what's interesting, because sometimes our concept of spiritual maturity is someone who's so deep and all of that. You'd think if, if his goal was spiritual maturity, then his writing must have been out in this esoteric, ethereal profundity. I don't even know what those words mean. <laughs> but it's not. He says it's extremely practical. These are the marks of spiritual maturity. It's not just all of this out there. And for instance, um, maybe a, a verse that you ought to memorize is James chapter 1, verse 22. When he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Do what it says. He says, yes, knowledge is good, but spiritual maturity is more than knowledge. Having right theology is important, but spiritual maturity, maturity is more than just believing. In fact, in chapter two, he says, you believe there's one God? <laughs> Great. The demons believe that and they shudder. So if that's where you're setting the bar, you're right there with the demons, the spiritual mature demons. That's, it's like, come on. It's not just what you know. It's not just what you believe. It's what you do with what you know. It's how you live what you believe. That it's not just this accumulation of knowledge. And what are you saying with this whole thing? That, that's why we're calling this series doers. Because all the way through there's these verbs. It's the, the knowledge, the, the information needs to have assimilation, which results in transformation. That's what he's saying. This is the path to spiritual maturity. Knowing the right things, bringing them into your life, letting God use his word and his spirit to transform you so that you'll be changed. And these, then, are the marks of spiritual maturity. And as you'll see, James was heavily influenced in his writing by the Sermon on the Mount. Again, he may have been there and heard it, it may have been just common knowledge at that time in the early church, but you see references to the Sermon on the Mount again and again and again. The other thing is, James, being raised in a good Jewish home, would have been familiar with the Torah, with the laws, the prophets, and the writings, the wisdom literature. 
he would have been familiar with the book of Proverbs. And you see a lot of the, the truth of the book of Proverbs coming in here. And even the way he writes is kind of like Proverbs, these little sound bites, these little tweets, these little sections. You just remember these little pithy sayings and statements that have incredible truth. All right. That's the backdrop. That's the intro. You ready to get started? <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at just a couple of verses out of this. So I'm saying it's just like a stone that just skips across this pond. Some of you maybe who are new to church life, maybe coming back, you're not sure about this whole thing, you may say to yourself, yeah, the Bible, not sure. It just seems like an ancient, antiquated document that is irrelevant. It's out of touch. It doesn't apply to me. And I will say... There are certain parts of the Bible that were written to certain people in certain circumstances at a certain time, and you're right. Some of those parts are not written necessarily to us. But there are other parts of the Bible that when you read them, you begin to think, was this like written last week? Because it is so relevant and so pertinent to our lives today. Let me give you an example out of a book that's 3,000 years old. Tell me if this doesn't sound like something that we could apply today. Out of the book of Proverbs where it says... A fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing his own opinions. <laughs> Apparently, this has been going on for a while. Now, I want to ask some rhetorical questions. In rhetorical, that means I'm not looking for an answer from you. This is not two-way conversation here. This is not a dialogue. I'm going to ask rhetorical questions. Don't answer me. Don't nod. Don't murmur. Don't point. And don't give me any names. Okay? That, that one's not. Okay? Okay. All right. Now. Now. No more. Would it be possible to take this word a fool out and put in the name of a politician? Don't answer me. In fact, would it be possible to take this phrase a fool out and put in the name of a political party that you don't belong to? Or could you take this a fool out and put in your boss's name? Or your neighbor, or your coworker, or your parents, or your teenage daughter? <laughs> could you put pretty much anyone on Facebook here? <laughs> now, now away from the rhetorical questions, this one you can answer. Could you take a selfie and put your name here. Bob finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing his own opinions. See, I think this is part of the human condition. I think this is the default mode that humans have gone back into for at least 3,000 years, and it's as relevant today, and it's this issue that James writes to and addresses that we're going to look at today. And what's amazing when he talks about this in these verses is that he gives us some truth that on the one hand is so unbelievably simple, and yet at the same time, it's extremely profound and life-changing. So we're going to look at the book of James, chapter 1. If you have your Bible or tablet, phone, other devices that you'd like to follow along, James chapter 1. We're just going to look at a couple of verses, and some of the, the, the verse uh, that we're going to spend the most time on, many of you are familiar with. And it's so simple that it would be, it would be easy to just dismiss it, just like, yeah, come on, give me something deep. Give me some meat. I want to, I'm going to grow maturity. But what you will find is, as you really understand this, to apply this, to not just know it, not just believe it, 
but to live it, to be a doer of this, is a mark of maturity. It's found in James chapter 1, in verse 19, and it starts off this way. My dear brothers and sisters, interesting that he throws that in. Influence of his brother Jesus. Because in that culture, women did not have a voice. They couldn't be used as a testimony in a court of law, could not own property. They were often seen as property. But Jesus brings incredible worth and value and status and regard and respect for women. And he understands this. So his brother's saying, brothers and sisters, we're together in this. We don't operate like the world does. We're, we're equals as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Like, listen up, focus, focus. This one's important. Everyone. Let me just be clear on this. Because with this word, everyone, I think it, it, it uh, encompasses four Ps. Everyone would incur, it, it, it include the President of the United States, the pastor of Cornwall Church, all of you who are parents. Now some of you are saying, I'm off the hook, there is one more P. A participant in the human race. <laughs> because everyone means everyone. You don't even have to know Greek. He's saying this is all skate. This is for every single person. It doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter what status you have, your education, your social economic class, it doesn't matter your, your gender, it doesn't matter your race, this is everyone. And this is something everyone can do. And here is this simple yet unbelievably profound statement that he says. James 1:19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. One quick, two slows. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Say that with me. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Skagit and Boca, join me here. Everybody, say it. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Let's just come talk about that. This slow to speak, or, or, or quick to listen, excuse me, quick to listen. I don't know if you have ever said something and either immediately or later regretted it. You say, why did I say that? I mean, there are so many times I'll say something and it's like right here and I'm like, no, and it's gone. And I'm like, why did I say that? And maybe it was some insensitive remark and it was maybe supposed to be, be funny but it was hurtful to somebody. Or maybe it was actually mean or maybe it was cruel and it was, it was meant to bring them down. I'm like, why did I say that? Or maybe it was some words that were inaccurate. Maybe it was a little bit misleading. Maybe it wasn't the full truth. Maybe it was just kind of implied or, or maybe it was just kind of just not exactly right. Or maybe it was just completely unnecessary. Maybe it was gossip. Maybe it was slander. Maybe it was truth, but it didn't bring anything good out of it. Uh, anyone else besides me have some regrets over the things you've said? Now, now think about this. Have you ever had a regret when you were quick to listen? I mean, did you ever look back and say, man, I sure wish I wouldn't have really heard what they were thinking. <laughs> I, I wish I would have just taken the, the, the words at face value and not really listened to the, the emotion behind it, the, the, the things that were not said, to read the body language. I wish I would not have been uh, empathetic when I heard I, I wish I would have just been cold and callous and just taken it and gone. Have you ever had regrets for being quick to listen? 
Have you ever seen someone that, that says something that's good, but then they keep talking and you say, you should have just stopped there. In an interview or a debate or a conversation, like, man, the more you talk, the dumber you sound. You, you just diminish your credibility. Just stop talking. I know this is going to date me, but in, in the mid-80s, there was a group called Run DMC. Yeah, um, we're, we're not going to play any of their music this morning. But they had a song in the mid-80s, and the chorus, and, and I'm not going to rap this for you, but the, the, the lyrics of the chorus were, you talk too much. You never shut up. I said you talk too much. Homeboy, you never shut up. <laughs> it's biblical. <laughs> Proverbs says this. A man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even-tempered. Sounds a lot like what James is saying here. Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. Do you know what that means? Your perceived IQ increases simply by shutting up. <laughs> that maybe when someone asks you a question, if you'll just be quiet, they'll think, wow, is she a deep thinker. Man, he has wisdom. And you're just standing there thinking, hmm. And your kid's saying, daddy, she just wants to know if you want fries with that. Hmm. <laughs> just this thought. Be quick to listen. You know, if Israel had a life verse for a nation, if they had a verse like this saying, this is our verse that we hold on to, it's a verse found in Deuteronomy chapter six. It was something that they said every morning before they got out of bed, every night before they went to sleep, every, every Jewish person would have said it. it was, it's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's called the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for the first word in this verse, which is the word hear. Hear. It's almost like God is saying, Israel, before you do say anything, hear, hear this. And not only that, but when you begin to understand that this whole thing of being quick to listen, of hearing, is actually an attribute of God's character. This is who our God is. In Isaiah, it says this. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, God our Father says, I will hear. He hears every prayer. He listens to every cry. There's, a, there's an obscure little verse in, in Exodus 22 that talks about a poor person, and God says, I will hear their cry because I have compassion. He hears. This is, this is a godly trait that our God hears. Back in, um, man, it must again have been late 70s or 80s, Stephen Covey came out with that classic book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Many of you have read that or you're familiar with it. Habit number five was seek first to understand. Seek first to understand. And in that, when he's explaining that habit, he talks about when you listen to a person, do you listen to reply, or do you listen to understand? Because sometimes we listen, and the only reason we're listening is because we're building a case for what we're going to say next. We're listening for them to come up for air so we can interject. We're listening so that we know how to rebut them. We're listening not in a way to try to understand what they're coming from, where they're thinking, what they, what they have in mind here. We're listening to, so that we can interject and fight back. C could you imagine? Could you imagine how refreshing it would be 
in a political debate, if one candidate just you know, wax passionately about their issues and all this and why they should vote for them and all this. And then it goes to the other candidate and, and before they speak, they say, you know, man, you have some really good points there. I guess I never saw it that way. I never thought about that. that that's, that's some good stuff. Hmm. I mean, how refreshing would that be? They wouldn't get elected, but how cool would that be? And then to have them say, and let me give you some perspective and say, say their side and have the other person say, well, I, I see where you're coming from. Those are some valid points and maybe I hadn't thought those through and maybe, and maybe we're not as far away from each other as we thought we were. Just to seek, to understand, to be quick to listen, just like our Heavenly Father is quick to listen. Quick to listen and slow to speak. That's the second one, slow to speak. And on this one, I'm just going to go straight for the jugular vein, and I'm going to use a trump card that you can't come up against. Jesus. I'm giving you the Sunday school answer. Jesus. Top that one. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Jesus, the Bible says, came full of grace and what? Anyone read the Bible? Full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. What that means is he has a lot of good things to say. He has the answer. In fact, he would say about himself, I am the way, I am the truth. So Jesus himself is the embodiment of truth. He's full of truth. And in John chapter one, we read that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That Jesus is the word. We sing that Christmas carol, word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, Follow all of this. Jesus is the word of the Father. He is filled with truth. He is the truth. And when he comes to this earth, he comes in the form of one that can't even speak. Here's the one who has all truth. And he's a f now in flesh appearing as one that cannot even speak. He didn't come into this world speaking the truth right away. He just had to listen. When he's 12 years old, at the end of Luke chapter 2, we get a glimpse of this little, little snapshot. 12 years old, they all went to Jerusalem to the temple. They're all going home. Jesus stays around. And it says about him that he stayed in the temple courts with the teachers listening and asking questions. Here's Jesus, the word of God, the word of the Father. The truth, full of truth. And as a 12-year-old, he's listening. He's asking questions. And maybe, maybe this is something that followed him throughout his ministry. Because when he starts his ministry, you would think he's got all these answers. He's going to tell us all the truth. There's a book by, uh, by a guy named uh, Walter Copenhaver. Uh, Copenhaver. And it's called Jesus is the Question. And he scoured the Gospels and found that in all of the red letters, all the things Jesus said, Jesus actually asked 307 different questions. And during his public ministry, he was asked 183 questions. And in those years, he only directly responded to eight or less of those questions. 
You would think Jesus would come and say, I've got all kinds of things I need to tell you. I've got all kinds of truth I want. Jesus came asking questions. He came seeking to understand. He came to let other people speak. He was slow to speak. I don't know if you've ever been with someone who just loved to hear themselves talk. I mean, it's not a conversation. It's not a dialogue. It's a monologue. They go on and on, just droning on and on, each word more useless than the one before, and you're sitting there saying, I'm trapped. How will I ever get out of this? Is he ever going to stop? Some of you are feeling that right now. (laughs) Some of you are singing Run DMC songs to me right now. Homeboy, you never shut up. That's why some of you are watching online, so you can just hit mute. See, where there's a lot of words, Proverbs says this. When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Slow to speak. Not always having something to say. Slow to speak in that. You say it best when you say nothing at all. I I was going to sing, but I'm not going to. You know, uh, probably eight or nine years ago, there was a guy that came up to me and he said, Bob, you love to tell stories? I do. He says, you like to talk? You like to, I'm paid to talk. So you like to give your thoughts, opinions, insights? So I was going, yes, I do. He said, here's something you might try. Whenever you're in a gathering, maybe a dinner, a bunch of people together, and you're talking, you're telling a story, you've got your insights, you've got your opinions, you've got your thoughts, all that. If in that setting, there's a legitimate interruption, the waiter, the waitress comes out to take your order or the food is delivered. Or uh, someone stops and says, hey, just want to say hi. Or a phone rings. There's a legitimate interruption. After the interruption, don't resume your story unless someone asks you, Bob, what was it you were saying? Just wait and see because it's possible. They're not nearly as excited to hear what you were saying as you are to say it. I hate that individual. So many stories that should have been told that were left hanging because you didn't ask to hear the rest of it. Yeah, I've got a, a good friend. Some of you know my friend Sam. He's our, he's our guide in, in Israel. The guy's amazing. Uh, he is truly a polyglot. Uh, poly, more than one. Glot, is, I think, is where we get our word glossary. He can speak multiple languages. I mean, it's just, he can do the entire Israel tour in four or five different languages. He's amazing. And I think, how useful, how amazing, how, how beneficial it would be to be a polyglot. But hey, what? we're Americans, so we'll never be polyglots because we just assume the rest of the world needs to speak American, right? Okay, so instead of maybe being a polyglot, maybe we could learn to be an omni-mute. <laughs> I may not be able to talk in every language, but I can be quiet in multiple languages. <laughs> I can learn to hit mute right there and just listen. Talked about Jesus, the word in flesh, who came not speaking. There was a prophecy six, seven hundred years before he's born about his death. In Isaiah, when it says this about Jesus, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, So he did not open his mouth. Slow to speak. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. And he says, and slow to become angry. Usually it's when we get these things turned around. We got something to say. We're not listening, not trying to understand. And we get all this anger inside of us. He says, no, no, no. Slow to become angry. In fact, Proverbs says this. 
A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. Sounds like James. Some of you are exploders. Some of you are stuffers. Some of you are powders. Some of you are withdrawers. Some of you are passive aggressive. That's not the goal here. You know, it's interesting. In Galatians 6, where it talks about this contrast of the acts of the sinful nature and the fruit of the Spirit, the acts of the sinful nature have things like fits of rage and dissension and factions. This, you know, getting, I'm going to be right and I'm going to speak up and I'm going I'm to be mad. And the fruit of the Spirit says things like patience, peace, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, this simple little phrase, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, when you begin to understand, if we lived that out, that it would truly revolutionize every conversation, every home, every marriage, every work environment, it would revolutionize your world if we lived this out, and that's great, but I think there's something even greater. I think that maybe with this verse, that is true, but maybe there's also a divine agenda. There's something else that we can learn from this. Because follow this. What we just discovered is when we are quick to listen, we're ex exhibiting one of the character traits of our Heavenly Father. And when we're slow to speak, we're following an example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we're slow to become angry, we're allowing the fruit of the Spirit to be displayed in our lives. Do you follow the Trinity that's there? That when we live this verse, yes, it will revolutionize our relationships and our conversations. But there's something else that happens here. In verse 20 out of James chapter 1, Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. You remember what the whole goal of this book was? Spiritual maturity. The divine agenda is that we would be more like Christ. We would have more of Christ's character developed in us. We would be transformed more into the image of Christ. And it comes with something so practical with how we listen and how we speak and what we do with our anger. Now, right now, some of you are saying, I wish my spouse was here. Boy, I wish my kids were here. Man, I wish President Trump was here. <laughs> Let me just for a minute say, let's go back to the selfie that we took and remind you what the psalmist said in Psalm 19, verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Instead of saying this applies to everyone else, why don't we just say, let me apply this to myself and then think about this. Just imagine if every single one of us applied this simple, profound verse to our lives, how much different our lives, our marriages, our homes, our relationships, our conversations, our workplaces, this world could be. We can't force anyone else to do this. But we can surrender and submit to the Holy Spirit, follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, and reflect our Heavenly Father by being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, and become more like Jesus Christ 
It's a mark, James would say, it's a mark of maturity. As far as a challenge, you don't have to think too deeply on this one. Maybe it's to write these words out. Maybe it's to memorize them. Maybe it's to start every day and throughout the day to say, okay, in every conversation, everything, every interaction, slow to, slow to, uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And to start living this truth.